Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 1, verses 15, through chapter 2, verse 2. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshiped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld, I cried out for help, and you have heard my voice. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Rick. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 55. This is what I'm saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood can't inherit God's kingdom. Something that rots can't inherit something that doesn't decay. Listen, I'm telling you a secret. All of us won't die, but we will all be changed. In an instant, in the blink of an eye, at the final trumpet. The trumpet will blast and the dead will be raised with bodies that won't decay, and we will be changed. It's necessary for this rotting body to be clothed with what can't decay and for the body that is dying to be clothed in what can't die. And when the rotting body has been clothed in what can't decay and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die, then this statement in scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by a victory. Where is your victory, death? Where is your sting, death? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 12, 38 through 41. At that time, some of the legal experts and the Pharisees requested of Jesus, Teacher, we would like to see a sign from you. But he replied, An evil and unfaithful generation searches for a sign but it won't receive any sign except Jonah's sign. Just as Jonah was in the whale's belly for three days and three nights, so the human one will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The citizens of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it as guilty because they changed their hearts and lives in response to Jonah's preaching. And look, someone greater than Jonah is here. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we're gathered together again by your Spirit to hear your word, to listen to your voice, to be moved according to your will. So here we are as your people. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you open our minds to understand? And would you? Ignite our hearts with holy love. Holy love for you, holy love for one another, and holy love for strangers and even our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. 
Brave in the 11 o'clock with the snow on the way. Well done. Uh, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. If you're new or newer or visiting, thanks for being here this morning. If you're watching online, we hope to see you sometime in the room. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packin, will be back next week uh, as we continue on in this series. I grew up in a, a small town in north central Iowa, about two hours south of Minneapolis and two hours north of Des Moines. And when I was in college, I went to college at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I thought during my junior year, it'd be a really great idea to invite a bunch of my friends to come to Iowa in November. <laughs> I have great ideas. And so we piled up a couple of cars and we went on the road trip, uh, kind of you know, through Oklahoma and then north through Missouri and into Iowa. And if you've ever taken that stretch of road through the country, the further north you get, the more bleak life becomes, <laughs> especially that time of year. You get, you know, into Kansas City, you got this big, you know, city. And then once you get north of there, it's like everything just gets browner and colder and wetter and darker and with each sort of like mile you travel it seems like the towns get further and further apart and the towns get smaller and smaller and you kind of look out and all you see is empty cornfield after empty cornfield after empty cornfield followed by an abandoned barn and then another empty cornfield and as you get past, you know, you get to Des Moines and there's like this little blip of like, oh, there's people. And then you get north of Des Moines and it just goes back to this desolate sort of place. And about 45 minutes north of Des Moines, there's this truck stop off of I-35 where you got two truck stops on either side of the interstate. And the place is actually called the Boondocks. That's its name. And we decided like this was the great place to stop, kind of get gas before we took the last hour and a half or so on back roads uh, to the place that I lived. And in the car behind me was my college friend, Robin. And Robin grew up in this small uh, community in Mississippi. And so Robin gets out of the car, beelines it over to me, and he looks at me with a sort of malice in his face, says, where are we? <laughs> we have lost God. <laughs> Apparently, we managed to accomplish on a senior or a junior year road trip what Jonah couldn't accomplish. We managed to actually flee from God's presence into the boondocks of Iowa. <laughs> Last week, we started this new series through the book of Jonah called When God Calls. And we spent some time last week really looking at the first three verses of the book and trying to understand the historical, cultural sort of context of Jonah, because if we don't really understand the setting for Jonah, we won't really understand what's happening, why he's responding the way that he is. Jonah is actually an 8th century prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's first introduced to us in the book of 2 Kings when Jonah prophesies that Israel's king Jeroboam II will be the king that restores Israel to its glory, that he will restore its borders to the same place they were at the time of King Solomon, that he's going to be the guy to do it. And what happens is, is that Jeroboam actually accomplishes this. He's a king that does what's evil in God's eyes, but God still shows him and his people mercy, and they have this political and military success, and they sort of expand their boundaries back, but it only lasts for a moment. 
In the very next chapter, we find that Jeroboam's work and Jonah's word have been undone by the empire of Assyria. The Neo-Assyrian Empire sort of emerges around this time as the first true empire in the ancient world. They have made it their mission to conquer everyone. And to that end, they developed the region's first standing military. And they made it their goal to brutalize and terrorize everybody that they possibly could, to take what we now consider to be war crimes and to make that their MO and to pride themselves in it and to glory in it and to take over everyone in this way. Assyria was Israel's greatest and most feared enemy. They're the ones that undo what Jeroboam had accomplished and eventually they're the ones that actually conquer the entire northern kingdom, and exile the people throughout the land. Those people become known as the lost tribes of Israel. They're terrible. And the book of Jonah opens with God calling Jonah to go to Assyria, to go to Nineveh, to one of the largest cities in this empire, to go to the place and to go to the people that Jonah least wants to go to. So if there's anywhere to be, send me, send me anywhere but there, not to my enemy, not into the heartland of my enemy, not to those people, not to that place. And so what does Jonah do? He goes the opposite direction, right? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah gets up and he says, yeah, I think I'm going to go to Tarshish instead. Instead of going to Nineveh, which is 500 miles to his north and east, he goes 2,500 miles to the west. It's like the word of the Lord coming to us and telling us in Denver, Colorado Springs area to go to Juarez, Mexico, and we say, well, Newfoundland sounds great right now. And we go that way. But Tarshish is not just a random location. It's a place in the Bible that's described as a place with great wealth and great ease and great comfort. It's almost as described as an Eden-like place. It's like, I'd rather go to a place of pleasure and comfort than to go and share God's word with my enemies. And when people retell the story of Jonah, oftentimes the story of Jonah is told as a story about a prophet's disobedience. And this is really what the problem of the book is. But the problem of the book is not Jonah's disobedience. Jonah's disobedience is just a symptom of a larger problem. Jonah's larger problem is a theological one. Jonah's larger problem is a problem with God, an issue he has with the Lord. See, what Jonah wants is Jonah wants justice. Jonah wants God to punish Assyria. Jonah wants God to just absolutely do to Assyria what Assyria has done to his people. He wants justice but he knows that God is a God of mercy. And he knows that if God is sending him to Nineveh, that he will relent from punishing them. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. See, it's not so much that he's just disobedient, but underneath this is that he really wants a different word from God. And he actually wants a different God. He wants a God that will punish and not show mercy. And so he gets up and he tries to flee from God's presence. He goes to a place better than the Iowa boondocks to try to get away. But as we saw last week, this book is actually not really about Jonah's response to God. 
the larger sort of issue of the book, the larger perspective, the larger story that's being told is not about Jonah's response to God, but about God's response to Jonah. And then ultimately, not just simply about God's response to Jonah, but God's response to us. When we're acting like Jonah, when we find ourselves in this place, how is it that God responds to all of us? And so today we're going to tackle the next two big sections of the book. We're going to start off the same way we did last week, kind of old school Bible study style. And then we'll talk about some of the things that the book teaches us then about the God that we serve. So we're going to look at two big sections here. The first one, Jonah 1, 4 through 16, begins with the Lord hurling a great wind. The second section, 17 through 2.10, begins with the Lord sending a fish. The previous section began with the Lord sending his word. That we see throughout this, but God's the one who's taking all the initiation. God's the one who is on the move. God's the one who's speaking and who's showing mercy and rescuing. God is the one who's the primary actor in this. And what we're going to do with this first section is I want to look at the beginning and the end, and then we'll come back and see what happens in the middle. And so it begins this way. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So there was a great storm on the sea, and the ship looked like it might be broken into pieces. And the sailors were terrified. If you've ever been near water in a storm, you can imagine the sort of terror that grips them at this point. They're terrified. And each one cried out to his God. And then they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to try to make that lighter, thinking maybe this will help. Maybe if we just lighten the ship, we'll be okay. Then later on, at the very, very end of, of this section, Jonah 1.15, it says this, Then they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshiped. Literally, they feared the Lord with a profound reverence, literally with a great fear. They feared with a great fear. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made solemn promises. The book of Jonah is like a really well-written, highly structured book. And so throughout Jonah, we see these structures kind of helping us to identify what the core message is. In the beginning, we see that the Lord hurls a wind onto the sea. And then we see correspondingly the sailors hurl Jonah onto the sea. When the Lord hurls the wind onto the sea, there's a great storm upon it. When the sailors hurl Jonah, the sea stops. When the sailors see the storm, they fear the storm. Later on, when the sea stops its raging, they fear the Lord. When they fear the storm, each one cries out to his or her God. They're crying to every known sea god that they can imagine. Neptune, Davy Jones, Aquaman, they're covering all of them. Get all of their bases covered. And at the end, though, they're worshiping the Lord. We see this parallel thing of the soldiers changing, but what happens in the middle is so fascinating. What happens in the middle is that Jonah tells them who Yahweh is. Jonah tells them who God is. As they're crying out to all of their gods, Jonah tells them exactly who God is. He says it this way. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship, literally, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the 
sea and the dry land. I fear the Lord who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were terrified and they said to him, what have you done? For the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. Okay, so Jonah, let me get this straight. You, you fear a God who made the sea and the dry land. And you're trying to get away from this God on the sea. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, could you hear the sailors at this point being introduced to the God who made the sea and the dry land by a prophet who's trying to get away from him on a boat? It's like, you're killing me, Smalls. What are you doing? Jonah, you've lost your mind. See, Jonah in this moment, he identifies himself as a Hebrew. He says, I am part of the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He identifies himself as part of God's people and God's story. He, he claims to fear the Lord. And he even proclaims the truth about who God is, that he's the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah says all the right things. He even believes all the right things. He knows Israel's creeds. He would have crushed Bible trivia. It's like, sign me up for that Sunday school competition. I am in. I've got this. He knows it. But there's a huge disconnect. Who he claims to be and what he claims to believe does not align with how he lives. Who he claims to be and what he claims to believe does not align with actually how he lives. His beliefs, his desires, his practices, his life is out of sync. It doesn't match up. He's fleeing from the Lord, not fearing him. There's a major disconnect. And the sailors are looking at him and going like, are you kidding me? Because they now find themselves in the midst of a storm because of what's going on with Jonah. And what's really fascinating here is that Jonah gets to the point pretty quickly where he recognizes he's the problem. <laughs> like, really? Like, did it take you a while to figure that out, Jonah? Because you seem to be a little slow on the uptake here. <laughs> Jonah's like, oh, okay, I'm the problem here. But what's really fascinating is Jonah's solution. Jonah's solution is not to repent. It's not to pray. They, the sailors tell him, like, call out to your God. Maybe your God will have mercy on us. He doesn't pray. He doesn't repent. Instead, he says, throw me overboard. I've got an idea. I've got a solution. Just toss me into the sea. He recognizes that he's the problem, but his solution is not repentance, it's death. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard rather than serve a God who shows mercy to his enemies, he would rather drown in the sea. This is how committed Jonah is to staying away from God and to staying away from God's plans and purposes. He says, I'd rather die. What's fascinating here in this moment is how the sailors respond to him. I'm thinking if I'm the sailor and I know that this guy is the cause of the storm, we're like, sure, I'm in. Let's toss you overboard, man. But instead, the sailors actually try to row back to shore. The sailors start calling out to God. 
They're like, don't, don't let this happen. Don't let this be on us. They do everything they possibly can to save Jonah, who's caused them great harm. The scripture even says that there's an evil that has come upon them because of Jonah. Jonah has done evil to them. Jonah has harmed them. And what do they do? They do everything they possibly can to save this guy. The same guy that refuses to go to the people that have done him great harm, that have done him great evil. They try to save him. He wants the Ninevites, the Assyrians, to perish. To catch the irony there, God's prophet being in this place. The sailors cry out to Yahweh, Jonah doesn't. After trying everything they possibly can, it's then and only then they toss him overboard. And then notice their response. The sea gets calm. It says the sailors fear the Lord with a great fear. Jonah's proclaimed that he fears the Lord. The sailors actually do it. They fear the Lord and they express that with sacrifices and with vows, the very things that Jonah refuses to give to God. See, one of the fascinating things about this story is that through a God-fleeing prophet, pagan sailors become God-fearers. Like, even as Jonah is saying, I want to get away from you and your mission and your plans and your purposes in the world, I'm going to do everything I can to possibly get away. He inadvertently ends up preaching the gospel to a bunch of sailors on a boat. It's like, I'm trying to get away from you. I'm trying to get away from what it is that you want to do. And yet it's through him and through this moment that God continues to work and to move. Isn't that such a true story about the people of God? That even in the midst of our bad theologies, even in the midst of our disobedience or our rebellion, even in the midst of our brokenness and our pain and the things that we try to hide, even in the midst of our failures as the people of God, as the church, even in the midst of all the things that we can point fingers at and say, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and that's broken and that hurts and that shouldn't be that way and this, no. Even in the midst of that, God shows mercy and continues to further his plans and his purposes in the world through his people. He continues to invite us in. He continues to say, hey, even in the midst of this, I'm still at work in you and through you. As we go on, it says in that second section, then here's what happens going to the next big session. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then at the very end of that section, it says, then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love the fact that they use that word. Jonah's a little hard to digest, you know. <laughs> he even makes the fish sick. And the fish is like, I, you got to get out. <laughs> but here's what's really interesting. The Lord sends a fish to swallow Jonah while he's in the sea. And then the Lord tells the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. What did Jonah just say in the last chapter about who God is? He's the God who made the sea and the dry land. See, what happens in this moment is that God rescues Jonah from the sea and delivers him to the dry land. 
just like we saw in creation, that God pushes away the waters of chaos and causes dry land to appear, that there might be life. But in this moment, he uses a really big fish to do it. He uses a big fish to deliver Jonah. See, in the story, the, the fish is not a vehicle of judgment. The fish is a vehicle of mercy. The fish is not Jonah's punishment. The fish is part of God's deliverance. I'm sorry, children Bible authors everywhere. <laughs> the fish is not punishment for Jonah. The fish is an expression of God's mercy, of God's salvation, of God's rescue. It becomes really clear when we actually look at Jonah's prayer. As we look at what's happening in the middle of this, he says uh, this, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. He's in the belly, and he's already been answered. From the belly of the underworld, that was the problem, I cried out for help, and you heard my voice. And he goes on, and he talks about the flood of water over his head and the breakers and the waves that are crashing over him. You can kind of imagine Jonah at this point at the top of the water. He just got thrown overboard. And then as the prayer continues, he starts talking about how the waters start to grasp his soul, his breath. He's losing oxygen. As it goes on, it says the deep surrounds him and the seaweed wraps around his head. I'm glad that he included that part. <laughs> like the seaweed is all over him and it says he goes all the way down to the base of the mountains at the bottom of the sea and the earth closes over him. And he says, but you, Lord, you brought me out of the pits. You brought me out of the grave. You brought me out of death. And then he says this, so for me, I will offer sacrifice. The thing he didn't do earlier, the sailors did. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to offer a sacrifice, and I'm going to do so with a voice of thanksgiving, that which I promised. Remember, the sailors were making vows. Now Jonah's going to make promises as well. I'll, I'll pay those promises. I'll keep those vows. And then he says this. He says, deliverance belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. See, in the midst of this moment as he is being tossed overboard and drowning, he then gets rescued by this fish and he sings a song of deliverance. Notice everything he's being delivered from is the water. It's nothing about, you know, the other fish inside the belly of the fish or entrails or smells or anything. Everything he's being delivered from is the water. He's drowning. In this moment, Jonah sings the right song. He knows the songs just like he knows the creeds. He prays the right prayers. He says that he will do the right things, that he will make sacrifices and he will keep his promises. So what happens? What's different in the middle of this? The traditional kind of telling of the story is that Jonah repents, that this is what happens, that Jonah repents. What's interesting is the term for repentance is never used. Jonah never actually says that he's sorry. Jonah never acknowledges his hate for the Assyrians. In addition, the things that would normally go along with repentance, like sackcloth and ashes, Jonah doesn't say anything about them. I'm guessing that's because they're not readily available in the belly of a fish, but the idea here is that there's nothing in this that actually shows that Jonah's repented. 
As the book goes on, Jonah ends up on dry land, and the word of God has to come to him a second time to try to get him to go to Nineveh. He doesn't just turn and just start to go to Nineveh. He stops somewhere, and the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. This time, he does go, but likely he goes because I don't want to end up in the sea again. Like, what other choice do I have? So he does go, but as we see as the book goes on, nothing has changed inside of him that he still does not want God to show mercy. He still is filled with hate and anger. He still would rather die than have God forgive his enemies. He's still in that place. So what happens in this moment? What happens in this moment is that Jonah realizes that God hasn't changed. That God continues to show mercy to him. What happens in this moment is that God just continues to show Jonah mercy. All throughout the book, God is responding to Jonah with mercy, with mercy, with mercy. This is who God is. He's a God who's merciful and compassionate. He does not change. So even in the midst of this moment for Jonah, God is showing him mercy. God performs an undeserved underwater rescue operation. That's what he does. God does not give Jonah what he deserves or what he desires. He does not give Jonah what he deserves or what he desires. Instead, he does for Jonah what Jonah does not want God to do for others. He shows mercy to Jonah, the one who does not want mercy to be shown to other people. God continues to show him mercy. See, sometimes we think when we're reading this story that it's our repentance that leads to God's kindness, right? That it's our repentance. It's the things that we do that then sort of like unlock God's mercy and bring them pouring down. And it's being held up. It's being held back until we, you know, say the right words or unlock it. And then suddenly God's mercy will come to us. Now the scriptures say it's God's mercy. It's God's kindness that lead us to repentance. It's his mercy. It's his kindness. It's his goodness. It's his faithfulness. It's his love. It's a revelation of who he is that actually causes us to say, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want something different for my life than this. It's his mercy that brings us to that in our lives. It's God's mercy. So I think this section of the book of Jonah wants us to help us to see a few things about God. First thing is that I think the book wants us to see that God's presence is inescapable. Jonah does everything he can short of going to the boondocks, right? He goes down to Joppa. He goes down on a boat. He goes down into the bottom of the boat. He has people throw him down into the water. And then he goes down all the way to the bottom. He gets as far away from God as he thinks he can possibly get. And what does he find there? God's mercy. At the very bottom, the mercy of God finds him and brings him up. His presence is inescapable in this place where he said everything is closed in over him. God is there. When I look to the mountains, 
God is there. If I go to the depths of the sea, God is there. His presence is inescapable. Jonah does everything he can to run from God. He can't. And some of us know that story. We were running hard in the other direction and found when we got to the end of the line that God was there too. Some of us may be in that place this morning. Like I'm trying to run from God and somehow I ended up at church today. I'm not sure how. And God is here. Other of us may have a hard time with this, just thinking, yeah, but I don't see God. I don't feel God. I don't sense God. I don't feel him like he used to. I don't see him. I'm not experiencing him in worship the way that I did before. That we can be in these moments where we feel far from God and tell you that God is not far from you. That even in those moments when we feel far from him, he is not far from us. I think this is where we're reminded of the story of Jacob who thought, he was in this place. He said, surely God was in this place. And I just wasn't aware. I just couldn't see it. God's not far from you. God is near. Even when it feels like he's far, he's close. Even when we try to run away, God's close. When we try to get away, he's near. When we feel far away, he's near. And that's not just true for us. That's true for our loved ones. Some of us, when we start thinking about God's presence being inescapable, we're thinking about sons and daughters. Thinking about brothers and sisters. We're thinking about moms and dads or aunts and uncles or friends or coworkers. We're thinking about that person that we were friends with that led that Bible study with us and prayed with us and maybe even that person that first told us about Jesus. And we've seen the trajectory of their life. And when we look at it, we say they've, they've gone far. They've wandered away. They've gone far from God. God's not far from them. He's not far from them. His presence is inescapable. God is as near to them today as he was in that moment when you thought, oh, look at that. Look what God's doing. God's still near. His presence is is inescapable. And the second thing it wants us to see is that God's mercy is unpredictable. God's mercy is so unpredictable. It comes to us in surprising ways and from surprising people. It doesn't come from the places that we think it's going to all the time. It doesn't always come the way that we want it or the way we're asking for it or the way we expect it. Sometimes it actually comes in ways that it's easy for us to miss it or to mistake it for something else. How many times I wonder... The mercy of God showed up in our life and we just missed it. We didn't see it. We thought it was something else. It comes to us in surprising ways. The mercy of God came to a bunch of pagan sailors through a runaway prophet. The mercy of God came to Jonah through a big fish. The mercy of God comes to us in surprising and unexpected ways. If you were here last week, I shared this story of my first heartbreak my first girlfriend who broke up with me in the school cafeteria on February 15th and started dating another guy later on that day. I know, it's a heartbreaking tale. It's a high school tragedy. Six weeks later, I ended up at her house where her dad, 
who was also the manager at the grocery store that I worked, opened the Bible and shared the gospel with me for the first time. God's mercy comes in surprising ways, comes in unexpected ways to us. It doesn't come all the ways we think it's going to. It comes out of sideways and knocks us off our feet. And sometimes it comes in silence and in whispers and in stillness and in things that we can't see can easily mistake. But oh, for us to continue to be surprised by the mercy of God, to be looking for it, to find it, to encounter it, and to be able to name it and not name it something else, but to say, I don't know what that was, but I think it was the mercy of God in my life. I can't explain it. I can't predict it. I can't control it. But it's the mercy of God coming into our lives. The third thing we see in the book is that God desires our transformation and our participation. See, Jonah believed all the right things, didn't he? He had the creeds down. He even did some of the right things. He prayed the right prayers. He sang the right songs. Eventually, he goes and prophesies. He's believing the right things and he's doing the right things. But Jonah's heart is far from God. He's misaligned in his desires. God desires mercy and Jonah wants justice. God desires to forgive and to save and to redeem and restore and Jonah wants punishment and vengeance. Not for himself, just for other people. He's happy to take the other on his own, on his own account. But his heart is misaligned. See, part of what God wants to do in our lives is he wants to align our beliefs and our thoughts and our practices. Discipleship is actually about a renovation of all of those things. That part of discipleship for us is realizing the wrong things that we believed about God and having right things, right thinking coming into place. That's a part of it. And so why Bible studies and books and courses and all those things matter because right thinking about God matters. But we can accumulate a whole lot of knowledge and actually not be fully transformed in our lives. We can read all sorts of books and find that those books end up at the very end. We find ourselves feeling far from God and being misaligned in some way. It's important, but it's not everything. God actually wants not only our right thinking, but our right desiring. He wants to reorient our hearts to desire the very things that he wants for ourselves and for the world. See, oftentimes the things that we want for ourselves are actually not what God wants for us. And other times what we want for other people is actually not what God wants. And part of our discipleship is a transformation, a reorientation of our desires that we learn to desire what God wants in the world. And then that also is, corresponds with a desire of God for us to learn how to live in accordance with his ways in the world, to have right practices, to live in the right way. Jonah had all of the right theology and he was living in a way that was incongruent with what he said he believed. And God wants us to have right thinking and right desires and right living, right practices so that we might experience the fullness and the flourishing that God has for us. It's all of it. It's a transformation and renovation of our whole lives, not just a part of us. Jonah shows us the danger of just having transformation in one part of our lives rather than all of it. And the other thing is, is that God wants this transformation because he also wants participation. He wants us to be with him 
but also to participate with him in what he is doing in the world. But oftentimes we think that we have to have all the transformation finished before the participation can begin. It's not true. Jonah's transformation clearly wasn't complete, and God was using having him participate in all sorts of things in the middle of this. See, oftentimes, actually, participation is the means of transformation for us. So we think like, okay, I've got to get all my theology right, and then I've got to get all this right, and then I get all that right, and then once I have all of that right, and I've got everything sort of locked in, then I can share my faith with my family or my coworkers. Then I can follow God to that place that I hear him inviting me or calling him to. Once I get that locked down, well, then I can take this risk or I can step out in faith here. Once I get that locked in, then I can volunteer in this place or that place. But the transformation never ends. It's an ongoing process in our life. And the transformation and participation actually go together. One of the most transformative things for me early on as a follower of Jesus was getting involved in student ministry as a 19-year-old. I came to Christ at 16 and then started serving as a youth pastor at 19. (laughs) Not good. (laughs) I can't tell you the number of times that I pray that those students forget every sermon that I gave for those first like four or five years. By the grace of God, may they not remember a thing that I said. But I can tell you what, getting involved in student ministry, volunteering, serving in that capacity, coming on church staff, taking all of the time to be with high school students, to pray for them, to try to study the scriptures and to try to put together sermons and to show up at high schools and to go out for coffees and to just get involved and participate in what God was doing in people's lives. You know who got changed the most during those years? Me. It was me. I was the one that I think was shaped and transformed more than anyone else in that time. Those students, I think, were more of a means of grace in my life than I was in theirs. It was participation that was part of the transformation. It's happening in the middle of that. The last thing I think that God wants us to see in the midst of this chapter is that God's deliverance is for everyone. This is Jonah's problem, right? Jonah wants deliverance for himself and not for others. But he says at the very end there that actually deliverance belongs to the Lord. That deliverance belongs to the Lord. And we see over and over and over again throughout the book that the Lord is wanting to bring rescue to people. And Jonah in this moment where he finally sort of comes to his senses, he cries out in his distress. He says, the Lord heard me. The Lord was there. The Lord was present. And the Lord delivered me. The Lord saved me in surprising ways. The Lord brought me up from the pit. I had gone as far as I could. I came to the end of myself, and God rescued me. He brought me up from the pit. God is a God who wants to bring about deliverance. And he does so even in this book through Jonah. He uses Jonah. He works through Jonah to bring his rescue, his deliverance to the sailors and to the Assyrians. And Matthew reminds us that one who's greater than Jonah is here. The person of Jesus has come. Jesus, whose name means God saves, God delivers, God rescues, has come into the world. And he became flesh and came into this world. And like Jonah, he spent three days and three nights somewhere 
but not in the belly of the fish, but in the tomb. He was crucified, buried, and died. But in the third day, the Lord raised him up. That all who come to him might be saved. That all who call on him might be rescued. That all who say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, I need you, might be rescued and saved by him. So this morning as we get ready to come to the table, you may find yourself in a place where you feel like you're drowning, where you've come to the bottom, you've come to the end of yourself, or it even feels like the end of life. I'm here to tell you that Jesus has come to save. He's come to deliver. The scripture said, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies with God, God sent Jesus to come and rescue us, to save us. And I think the invitation of God today is to cry out in your distress and to say, Lord, save me. Help me. Rescue me in this moment. Especially if you've never done that before. You've never cried out to Jesus and said, I can't do it. I can't rescue myself. I need you to deliver me for deliverance belongs to you. Would you consider crying out to him today in your distress and saying, God, would you save me? Or maybe today you find yourself in a place where your beliefs and your desires and your practices are going this way and that. And maybe the mercy of God today for you is to come to the table to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to align those things. Not for you to just say like, okay, I'm going to get them in line but to recognize it's the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God that actually helps align those things in us. Or maybe today you feel you've been hearing God's invitation to something, asking him, encouraging you, inviting you to come and participate with him in some way, and you've been holding it off for one reason or another, saying, oh, I gotta get this stuff taken care of first, or I can't do that, or I'm scared about this, or I'm not sure I'm the best person for that. Maybe you'd encounter the grace and the mercy of God today, granting the courage just to say yes, to step out and say, okay, I'm gonna go for it and see what it is that God might do, how you might encounter and experience the mercy of God in that moment. Or maybe today, you're not sure whether or not God's mercy is for you. And pray that maybe even as we come to the table, you would see it. You'd see it in the death and resurrection of Jesus who swallowed up death in victory. You'd experience his mercy today. Or maybe just that God would give you eyes to see it in places you haven't seen it before. Maybe looking back in your own life, that God will remind you of something like, oh, wait, I think that was the mercy of God. Or today, if you feel far from God, or you're concerned about someone that you love who's far from God, may the Lord comfort you with the knowledge that God is not far from you, and God is not far from them. But Jesus is here. He's present with us by his Holy Spirit right now as we come to the table. Pastor Evan, would you lead us?